British Spy Stories, Season 2, The Kill Order. Episode 10. It's getting on for 1am, when Laravel leaves Gabby's flat. But Gabby's brain is still awake, and she doesn't want to sleep. She drives her golf to Schiff-Bauerdamstrasse, parks up and pushes open the door to the Met Bar, to visit the barman, Gordon Rathbone, or Agent Hans, as he is known, on the MI6 Oberon system. Hans has been a friend and colleague for nearly a decade. She knows he is always ready to get back out on operations, as he is slightly bored by his deep cover life as a barman. His role in MI6 is a collector of information, from the espionage and criminal fraternity, who inhabit the Met Bar, in this part of Berlin. There are a dozen late-night drinkers in the place as she arrives. Hans is cleaning glasses. He looks up and gestures for her to sit at one of the tables, then brings over two beers. He sits down heavily in the chair opposite her. He is tall, six foot one, and solid like many ex-soldiers. His brown curly hair is short, like in his military days, and his eyes sparkle when he talks. Hans is one of her inner circle, one of the few people who she trusts. She tells him about the Operation Windfall extraction and the mistakes that led to Coda's injury. Then they talk about Florin Babu and her plans to go in deep cover and penetrate Florin Babu's operations. But Hans has his doubts. Babu is no ordinary criminal, Gab, he says. He'll kill first, ask questions later. They both smile at the impossibility of the words. Like doctors and soldiers, those who deal with death often use humour to cope. She swigs at her beer bottle. It's a risk, yeah. You need me, he says. Friendly support in the field. Maybe, Gordon. Where are you going to start? Belgrade, she says. His hometown, Gabby nods. Watch yourself. You don't need to look after me. She briefly puts her palm on the back of his hand. When do you go? As soon as. So you get in close. Then what? Kill Babu? No, he's more used to us alive. And I'm ignoring what the gang said to Laravel. We're not going to be killing his son, either. Hans nods. They need to think the boy's dead, though. For us to get Laravel out of danger. We may have to fake his son's death she says. But there's more to the plan. I want to turn Florin Babu. So he becomes an MI6 source. He'd never do that, surely. We'll find something he wants to exchange. Maybe he wants a new life. We can give him a new identity. He's not political, Gab. Just a hard man, says Hans. He doesn't want anything or need anything. That's why he's been so successful. There's always something to use as leverage she says. If you need me, call me, says Hans, and I'll be on the first plane out there. I know. After spending the day visiting all of the addresses on Riccardo Fazzoli's contact list in Verona, Riverside has only one more place to check, the house where Catherine disappeared, 
He wants to believe that she is still alive. She's as tough as they come. C9 branch snipers are all like that. Riverside has been sitting in his car for half an hour, watching the comings and goings around the house of Riccardo Fazzoli. The village is quiet and small enough that the residents probably all know each other. He's conscious that a strange man sitting in a car will get spotted sooner rather than later, and he wants to remain inconspicuous. Riverside can see the front door of the Fazzoli home, and no one has gone into or come out of the place in the time he's been here, but he wants to be certain, so he settles down to wait a little longer. After another hour, he's seen no activity from the house and decides to go and have a look inside. There is no side access, so Riverside drives to the dead end of the lane where the house sits halfway down. He parks the car and walks to the back of the property. He can see an MI6 climbing cord, left dangling on the back wall. This must have been how Catherine got access. Presumably she would have planned to use the same cord to make her escape. But that had never happened. Riverside tugs at the cord. It's still attached to a strong anchor, so he grasps it and climbs to the top, keeping his head low, so the chance of being seen by neighbours is reduced. He swings a leg over the wall and jumps down into the garden. The place looks deserted. There are no lights on or open windows. He tries the back door, but it's locked. He smashes a panel in the door, unlatches the lock and goes inside. No one appears to be around. He goes through the kitchen cupboards, which look like they've been cleared out in a hurry. He steps through to the lounge. The lingering smell of smoke tells him there has been an open fire here sometime recently. On the table to one side are the remains of gaffer tape, a knife and cloths. He inspects the room, but it's been cleaned of any evidence that might have been left behind. As he turns to walk up the stairs, he notices something under the table and kneels down to look more closely. Several drops of blood are sunk into the carpet. He scrapes the blood off, then pulls out his mobile phone and slides his finger along the top of the device to pull out a small tray. He drops the dried blood shards into the tray and shuts it again. Then he runs the MI6 DNA sampler app on the phone and puts the phone down on the table to wait the 60 seconds it will take to test the blood. He watches the display until it shows the results of the DNA analysis. He clicks on the button Compare to Oberon, the MI6 database, and the screen shows a turning wheel to tell him it's doing a comparison of all of the available DNA samples. After 30 seconds, the screen changes again. He reads from the device. Confirmed. Sample belongs to Agent Coniston. So she was here, and she did bleed in this room. It's a start, but he's still a long way from finding her. Each time Catherine depresses the accelerator of the SUV, a shot of pain stabs in the deep tissue of her leg, but she doesn't let that stop her journey up into the Alps. The car had half a tank when she pulled out from the house and turned north, leaving the man in the hallway. 
in a pool of his own blood. The first stretch of her journey had been tight bends and steep climbs up from the valleys until she reached the Strada Statale 12 motorway. But after that, it's been a straight run, and this route will take her to the border. She checks the time on the dashboard, and it shows 2.30 a.m. Catherine has worked out that she will be at the Brenner Pass and into Austria by four, and home to Zurich by eight in the morning. The dull monotony of the motorway, with its rhythmic sound of the wheels on the road, starts to make her sleepy. Her body is telling her that she needs rest after the last 24 hours. But she needs to keep going now. Then it will be over. And the post-mortems can begin about how the target knew she was there and what MI6 would do next about Riccardo Fizzoli. Her head falls to one side as sleep prods at her consciousness and the car swerves dangerously close to the crash barriers. She shakes her head, winds down the window next to her, and takes a lungful of oxygen. The coldness rushes into the vehicle, causing her skin to react. She drives on. Five minutes later, her head is enveloped again in sleep. The SUV swerves and hits the barrier, and scrapes along the metal, creating sparks that fly out in the night. Catherine's brain is trying to get her to wake up. She can see the events around her, but, like a dream, she can't control what is happening. The SUV comes off the barrier, then slams back again, harder this time. At this point of the motorway, the rock falls away steeply to the side. The momentum builds, pushing the vehicle further off the roadway. Five seconds. Ten. Rolling on, closer to the edge. Suddenly her brain engages. She wakes, slams the wheel around to the left, and the car spins across the carriageway. Light fills the space around her. A truck horn cracks through the air. Loud, right on top of her. She grabs the wheel hard again and spins it right this time. The lorry hurtles past, inches from the back of her car. The SUV comes to a halt, sideways, across the road. The nose is pushed up against the barrier, and Catherine stares at the valley floor below her. She doesn't move for two minutes. No more vehicles come past. She tries the engine, and the SUV fires up. She turns and drives further on her route north. An hour later and the fuel gauge has been on empty for 20 minutes. As she reaches the last slog uphill towards the Brenner Pass, the car carries on bravely, then gives up, two miles from the border. As the engine dies, she pulls off onto a side road. She can see a small hotel and a couple of houses up ahead. As she starts to get out of the car, she looks across at the bread knife lying on the passenger seat next to her. Her hand hovers in the air. Then she decides. She picks it up, gets out into the night, and shoves it into the back of her jeans, then starts walking 
towards the signs of human habitation.